Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Life, Leadership, and Basketball. Today, we are going to head back in time to where our country began, to where brave men and women stood their ground to bring us written documents that have helped establish a guideline for the greatest experiment ever seen on planet Earth. We will hear the names of those in the beginning, and we will hear from someone who held the highest office in the land. Join me in taking a brief trip down memory lane to the year 1776. Now to set the stage, this is during the time of the Revolutionary War. Tensions are high, battles are going on across the colonies again, from the British and the colonists that are trying to reject the British rule. And a group of men come together to sign a document. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the document before reading it. On August 2nd, 1776, is one of the most important but least celebrated days in American history, when 56 members of the Second Continental Congress started signing the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. Officially, the Congress declared its freedom from Great Britain on July 2nd, 1776, when it approved a resolution in a unanimous vote. After voting on independence on July 2nd, the group needed to draft a document explaining the move to the public. It had proposed in draft form by the Committee of Five, John Adams, Roger Sherman, Robert Livingston, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson. And it took two days for the Congress to agree on the edits. Thomas Jefferson, though, was the main author. His initial draft was written on June 11th, 1776. So once the Congress approved the actual Declaration of Independence document on July 4th, it was sent to a printer named John Dunlap. About 200 copies of the Dunlap broadside were printed, with John Hancock's name printed at the bottom. Today, 26 of those copies remain. Then, on July 8th, 1776, Colonel John Nixon of Philadelphia read a printed Declaration of Independence to the public for the first time on what is now called Independent Square. So just as John Nixon did back in 1776, I think it's a good idea every July 4th, or just once a year in general, to go over one of the founding documents of this country to see where our country came from, and how it started. So here we go. In Congress, July 4th, 1776. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with, with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth and separate an equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind 
requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate the government's long-established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under the absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with man manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions from within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers, 
He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their, tenure of their offices and the amount of, and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their, their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the, fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with, the, with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized, of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall by themselves fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for, petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be a ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in, in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to the native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindled kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. 
They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace and friends. In peace, friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right out to be freed, ought to be freed, to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The foundation that was forged between 1776 and 1778 stands strong today through countless attacks and manipulations over the short years of this country. But to those individuals' lives, we lost fighting abroad or domestically, to those families who lost loved ones from the action or from the effects after, to those that stand up and fight for the rights of others who may not have them or yet even understand what those rights actually are. Thank you for that sacrifice. The ones that still remember history or their own experiences and continue to fight, thank you. For those who are not yet on this earth, but will end up fighting the good fight taught by our forefathers. Again, we say thank you. Now, I'm going to read, in closing, President Reagan's speech from 1986 on July 4th on the USS John F. Kennedy. And then I'll end with a closing statement. Now here is President Ronald Reagan's Address to the Nation on Independence Day of 1986. My fellow Americans, in a few moments, the celebration will begin here in New York Harbor. It's going to be quite a show. I was just looking over the preparations and thinking about a saying that we had back in Hollywood about never doing a scene with kids or animals because they'd steal the scene every time. So you can rest assured I wouldn't even think about trying to compete with a fireworks display, especially on the 4th of July. My remarks tonight will be brief, but it's worth remembering that all the celebration of this day is rooted in history. It's recorded that shortly after the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia, Celebrations took place throughout the land, and many of the former colonists, that were just starting to call themselves Americans, set off cannons and marched in fife and drum parades. What a contrast with the sober scene that had taken place a short time earlier in Appendix Hall. 
Fifty-six men came forward to sign the parchment. It was noted at the time that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honors. And that was more than rhetoric. Each of those men knew the penalty for high treason to the crown. We must all hang together, Benjamin Franklin said, or assuredly, we will all hang separately. And John Hancock, it is said, wrote a signature in large script so King George could see it without his spectacles. They were brave. They stayed brave through all the bloodshed of the coming years. Their courage created a nation built on a universal claim to human dignity, on the proposition that every man, woman, and child had a right to a future of freedom. For just a moment, let us listen to those words again. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Last night, we rededicated Miss Liberty and relettered Torch. We, ref we reflected on all the millions who came here in search of the dream of freedom inaugurated in Independence Hall. We reflected, too, on their courage in coming grief and great coming great distances and settling in a foreign land and then passing on to their children and their children's children the hope symbolized in this statue here just behind us. The hope that is America. It is a hope that someday every people and every nation of the world will know the blessings of liberty. And it's the hope of millions around the world in the last few years. I've spoken at Westminster to the Mother of Parliaments, at Versailles, where French kings and world leaders have made war and peace. I've been to the Vatican in Rome, the Imperial Palace in Japan, and the ancient city of Beijing. I've seen the beaches of Normandy and stood again with those boys of Pointe du Hoc, who long ago scaled the heights and with, at that time, Lisa Zanata Hen, who was at Omaha Beach for the father she loved, the father who had once dreamed of seeing again the place where he and so many brave others had landed on D-Day. But he had died before he could make that trip. And she made it for him. And Dad, she said, I'll always be proud. And I've seen the successors to these brave men. The young Americans in uniform all over the world. Young Americans like you here tonight who manned the mighty USS Kennedy and the Iowa and other ships of the time, of the line. I can assure you, you out there who are listening, that these young are like their fathers and like grandfathers, just as, just as willing and just as brave. And we can be just as proud but our prayer tonight is that the call for their courage will never come and that it's important for us to, to be brave. Not so much the bravery of the battlefield, I mean the bravery of brotherhood. All through our history, our presidents and leaders have spoken of national unity and warned us that the real obstacle to moving forward, the boundaries of freedom, the only permanent danger to the hope that is America, comes 
from within. It's easy enough to dismiss this as kind of familiar exhortation. Yet the truth is that even two of our greatest founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, once learned this lesson late in life. They worked so closely together in Philadelphia for independence. But that was gained and then government was formed. Something called partisan politics began to get in the way. After a bitter and divisive campaign, Jefferson defeated Adams for the presidency in 1800. And the night before Jefferson's inauguration, Adams slipped away to Boston, disappointed, brokenhearted, and bitter. For years, their estrangement lasted. But then when both had retired, Jefferson, at 68, to Monticello, and Adams, at 76, to Quincy. They began, through their letters, to speak again to each other. To each other. Letters that discussed almost every conceivable subject, gardening, horseback riding, even sneezing as a cure for hiccups, but other subjects as well. The loss of loved ones, the mystery of grief and sorrow, the importance of religion, and of course, the last thoughts, the final hopes of two old men, two great patriarchs, for the country that they had helped to found and love so deeply. It carries me back, Jefferson wrote about correspondence with his co-signer of the Declaration of Independence, to the times when, beset with difficulties and dangers, we were fellow laborers in the same cause, struggling for what is most valuable to man, his right to self-government, laboring always to the same oar, with some wave ever ahead threatening to overwhelm us and yet passing harmless. We rode through the storm with heart in hand. It was their last gift to us, this lesson in brotherhood, and tolerance for each other, this insight into America's strength as a nation. And when both died on the same day, within hours of each other, that date was July 4th, 50 years exactly after the first gift to us, the Declaration of Independence. My fellow Americans, it falls to us to keep faith with them and all the great Americans of our past. Believe me, if there's one impression I carry with me after the privilege of holding for five and a half years the office held by Adams and Jefferson and Lincoln, it is this. That the things that unite us, America's past, of which we're so proud, our hopes and aspirations for the future of the world and this much-loved country, these things far outweigh what little divides us. And so tonight, we, are, we reaffirm that Jew and Gentile, we are one nation under God. That black and white, we are one nation, indivisible. That Republican and Democrat, we are all Americans. Tonight, with heart and hand, through whatever trial and travail, we pledge ourselves to each other and to the cause of human freedom. The cause that has given light to this land and hope to the world. My fellow Americans, 
were known around the world as a confident and happy people. Tonight, there is much to celebrate and many blessings to be grateful for. So while it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important and just as American to have some fun. Now let us have some fun and let the celebration begin. Now remember, throughout our history as a country, the good comes with the bad, the growing pains with the times of great glory. Pride in ourselves as Americans, not any other individualistic idea or division that's been created to separate the unity that once was, is what it's all about. Refer to Reagan's speech, refer to the Declaration of Independence, refer to the Constitution. It's all there. The more we read, the more we know, the more complicated it, it becomes for those that want what we have and will die to keep. That is God-given freedom. Thank you again for spending time with me in this celebration of our country and the reading of the Declaration of Independence and President Reagan's speech to remind us all of the greatness that we are allowed to live in. And remember, none of this can be can happen without the one above. If you'd like to hear more, I will be coming out with more episodes in the future. Please remember to, if you do like this episode or the ones before, please remember to like, share, and follow. And again, if you have any critique or you have any um, things that I may be able to add to my podcast, um, please let me know. And you can uh, message me on Instagram or Facebook. And I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.